paradigm of what we might call Hamiltonian dynamics. The idea that you can take any situation in space and then propagate it through time to get the future. When you have more than one time dimension, you have more than one future. You have no arrow of time. You have a whirlpool of time to the first additional time dimension. Then you have a right-hand rule of, of time. And so this arrow of time becomes something you call a time orientation. And then the weird, horrible thing about that, if I may use the board. Yeah, go for it. When you have more than one temporal dimension, you now have a new possibility that you've never considered, which is you could go back into this extra time, extra time dimension and find yourself at an earlier event without ever having to retrace time steps. You wouldn't have to run time backwards. You don't really know how to think about these things very well. They lead to something which is called ultra-hyperbolic equations. And we don't have a ton of focus or skill around these sorts of problems. One of my biggest concerns is, is that if geometric unity turns out to be true, we don't know what it means to be able to hack extra temporal dimensions. That's a big concern. And it would probably explain some of this, uh, at least observably faster than speed of travel. See, that's the thing. There is no faster than light travel. And we have to train people away from saying, you think ahead, we have faster than light travel. Mm -hmm. There may be something that would appear to be fast, which temporal dimension hacking, which sort of makes sense because a lot of these EWPs seem to sort of materialize and dematerialize at will. Look, there's certainly scope for pattern matching if you have things like dark chemistry, dark light, um, if you have uh, multiple spatial and temporal dimensions beyond what we know. The concern, though, is we don't know whether they're accessible. The interest and the fear has to do with the idea that maybe somebody else knows the answer to this and they aren't doing <laughs> Yeah. How's that? <laughs> yeah, can I comment on that? Man? Yeah, uh, go ahead. Please comment away and I'll be uh, right back. Round three. <laughs> yeah, what, what I, what kind of, what I was interested in when I saw that the first time when you sent it to me, because I, I think we may have discussed this the last time we spoke, but um, looking at the code and remember all this information that can fill three volumes of material, all this information is from seven sets of coordinates. Um, I mean, I've concentrated on a few, but it's from the seven sets of coordinates. And I'm deciphering this code. I'm deciphering the information that's been encapsulated in these seven sets of coordinates. I'm going to, I'm writing these two books, these two follow-up books to the first one. And those books will be published and they'll make their way into the future. It'll be on in the public domain in the future. And sometime in the future, when they know how to time travel or send things back in time, I think, oh, yeah, what about those seven coordinates? Let's have a look at that. Let's send them back. <laughs> oh, so, so, it's like so you, are, you, are the it's one like setting, you are the one who's setting up the Peniston code, Gary. <laughs> it's just a feeling. Yeah, I know, I know, I, know I understand how it's this just, is going to work. <laughs> it's something that I've entertained in my mind because I'm thinking this is bizarre. I mean, some of the things that come out of the code, I mean, it's a temporal anomaly. Uh, it, you know, it's... it's it, when this information 
when I find this information, it has something to do or it's associated with something that's happening right at that time. And I mean, this is 42 years after the code it was given to Jim Peniston. But the other thing is, and this is something I was talking about earlier, Manu, when you said to me, if you want to be taken seriously with stuff, you've got to look up the, the maps, the, the more accurate maps that's been surveyed at Giza by Glenn Dash and his, and his team. And I, what I'm finding is because of the Glenn Dash data, I need the Glenn Dash data to be able to decipher what's come up in the code. But the Glenn Dash data only began, I mean, it only began surveying the Giza Plateau in 2012. And some of the information that I needed about the Sphinx, which has led me to what you have been writing about, um, that was only uh, surveyed in 2018, where he outlined the, he gave the outline of the Sphinx with the survey points and with the correct coordinates. All that information that I needed to be able to decipher the code, which was given to Jim Peniston 42 years ago. So these are just some of the things that is bizarre and kind of it's mind boggling. But and they're facts. It's factual. Right. Right. Yeah. And look, the other thing. Look, look, before Rudolf Gantenbrink, we didn't know about the uh, Queen Chamber shafts. Yeah. 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 Right. That's true. We, did, That's we didn't have we didn't have those kind of robotics. That's what Jean-Paul Bouval keeps reminding me, saying, you know what, the Great Pyramid isn't done yet, revealing its secrets because we don't have the technology or we haven't had the technology to study it appropriately. And now with Muon, like, see, it's getting more sophisticated every time. Um, who knows what yeah. we're gonna find next? But um, but yeah, that's this is. I understand what you're saying. You, the, as technology improves and knowledge improves, you're going to discover more things. Your 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 limit yeah. of detection keeps advancing, and you're going to discover new things. But let's talk about and let's now get to the crux, the the jewel in the crown, right? Which is how the code authenticates itself via the fine structure constant. All right, should we talk about that? Yeah. So, Grant, did you did you um, how what is your understanding of this? Um, not not very much at all. I mean, I've I've I mean, I've watched a little bit of what people have said, but I, I really haven't had. It's not my field of expertise. Okay, I see. Yeah, it wasn't mine either. But uh, well, I, I guess Gary, you should explain it then. Um, how do you yeah, think Carl it's Sagan. working? Carl Sagan yeah. uh, in a book. I think it was the late seventies or eighties. Uh, he said that what would make him sit up and take notice is if there was a message from another civil from an advanced civilization, a message, uh, and even if it was in it was found in the ancient record, of and, and it involved the number of the fine structure constant, the nuclear fine structure constant. He said that would be something that would make me sit up and take notice, and it should it should with anybody else, you know, uh, it's worth kind of looking into. So um, with the code, and I mean, it was Robert Bobel who said to me, first of all, you know, why don't you, I mean, you found these other constants in the Great Pyramid. Can you find the fine structure constant? It was the first time I heard of it. And he explained what it was. And um, it's to do with, um, well, you know, don't you, Marna? You know the, the physics behind it. I don't, I know the numbers, but I don't know the actual physics. Yeah, maybe behind. explain not, it for people. I'm not familiar with it, huh? Explain it for somebody. Say explain it for people that that may be watching who wouldn't know either. 
Yeah, it has to do. Used. It has yeah. to do with one of the four forces of the universe, the the electromagnetic force, and it's basically the relationship between the ratio. Uh, it's a it's a relationship between various fundamental constants in the universe, and that ratio defines how strong the elemental charge interacts with an electromagnetic magnetic field. It's so, been described. Yeah, yeah, it's been described as the DNA of light. You know, yeah, it's because with it, the, the universe would not be able to exist if our universe, the way we know it with our laws of physics, it would not be able to exist if we were to veer off too much from this ratio, from this fine structure constant ratio. Yeah. Well, if there was a couple of digits, if there was a, a digit out, then everything would collapse. Yeah, deviation from, from the known value that, and, and of course the value keeps improving in terms of the accuracy. And that's a big part of Gary's story. So, you know, like a hundred, when we start, <laughs> first started measuring the fine structure constant, the value that was known was not the same value as the one that was known in modern times, um, as recent as let's say right. 2018. And so that's part of, that's part of the, uh, that's why the authentication aspect of this comes into play. Yeah. And it's amount, the amount of digits that we know of, you know, with the, uh, the decimal places, it's the number of digits that we know after the decimal place. Uh, it shows how intelligent you are, right? It shows intelligence because, you know, the number is a long number. But anyway, whoever devised the code must have thought, oh, yeah, well, if you want to see the fine structure constant in a message, let me show you where it is at Giza. <laughs> and it's like, when, when I started looking at the Nazca coordinates and I looked at the distance between the Nazca coordinates and Giza, it was 7687 miles exa exactly, which is a number that's in the, in the uh, public domain. But I then found that where it reached to was on the west face of the Great Pyramid because I'd worked it out in metres, okay, this number in metres. 7687 miles in metres, I was able to will it down to like a few feet. And... Um, it's on the west face of the Great Pyramid. So there's that distance. Then I thought, what if I measure the distance from that point on the Great Pyramid, which is aligned with the center, and I measure down um, to where the Giza diagonal is, the timeline is, where it intersects the Giza diagonal. Then I found that it's, five, it's exactly 540 royal cubits. And then I looked at the distance between the Great Pyramid and the Third Pyramid in the south, and found that the distance was 1413.72 royal cubits. And 540, if you say 540 away from that distance, you get 8737.72. And if you divide 873 by uh, 873.72 by 540, you get, uh, you get phi, which is 1.618 exactly. So then I realized that the pyramids have been built, they've been arranged and placed to this phi ratio kind of template, you know? And I realized that where that 540 came down from the west face of the pyramid and intersected the Giza diagonal, the, the latitude that was passing through that point and which cut the, um, those proportions, uh, the, the phi, the, the length, the distance between G1 and G3, it cut that distance into the five proportions of 1 and 0.618. And that latitude 
I looked at the numbers at that latitude. And Manu, you know, don't you, the, the 32 divided by seven constant. It's a constant, isn't it? Because you can divide all the power of two numbers by that constant. Okay, and you but get so the same did, uh, Gary, did, uh, so let, let, let's just make sure that uh, Nicole and Grant got... So Nicole and Grant, did you understand how the fine structure constant shows up in the plateau geometry? Yeah. It's the latitudes, right? Mm -hmm. So what Gary has found out that if you if you look at the overall master plan, how the three pyramids are are positioned, okay, you can you can map this with a rectangle, and that rectangle, when you divide it by the golden ratio, you that latitude that defines that division between you know the the uh, the, the golden proportions. section One proportions, point. that latitude translates into a fine structure constant value. Okay, right. so it's what Gary has found out is that the latitudes that course through the Giza Plateau have a relationship with the value of the fine structure constant through this factor 32 over 7. And all of this comes out of the code. Okay, and so the, the point is that in 1980, the value that was being basically sent to Jim Peniston is the value that wasn't known at that time yet. Correct. For the fine structure constant, the value that was transmitted to Jim Peniston through the zeros and ones that he received, okay, is the value that we were able to measure only in 2018. Mm -hmm. And this is what Gary has found out. So that's how the code proves to the audience that it could not possibly be a fake code because it predicted the future. And it says it's coming from the future. So therefore, it's a it's a plausible message. So when I saw, when Gary explained this to me, I, this is the first time that I thought to myself, <laughs> maybe there is something to this, okay? I have to, I got to pay attention to this because this is bizarre, okay? Um, yeah, and we're talking about tiny differences. It's not that, you know, 50 years ago, we weren't able to measure the fine structure constants. We were, but the accuracy of that measurement is not the same accuracy as 50 years later. And that's, of course, what we were just saying. Gary, you were just saying you didn't have the tools to interpret the code 10 years ago, right? Now now you have Google Earth, you have, uh, you know, you have all these new tools at your hand, and now all of a sudden you're finding things that you couldn't find 10 years ago. And that's exactly what we're talking about here. We didn't, we weren't able to measure the FSA, the, the fine structure constant to that accuracy in, 19, in 1980, but now we have a better way to measure it. So it's not, it's maybe not it's intelligence, it's more technology, right? So the technology accuracy of the measurements are higher now. And so that this is difficult to explain. This, it's what yeah. Gary is saying mm -hmm. is that the Kafre pyramid is basically a dial on which you can measure, the you can encode the fine structure constant with the latitudes. Well, simply put, the numbers in the latitude that cuts the, the distance between G1 and G3 uh, between 1 and 0.618, the two five proportions. The number in that latitude, when you multiply by 32 and you divide by 7, you get the inverse number of the fine structure constant to something like eight decimal places, wow. which is huge. Uh, yeah. and, if, and if you divide 1 by that number, then you get the fine structure constant itself, which is a long number, but it's to 13 decimal places. And... That golden cut latitude was only, it only made its appearance in 1980. In fact, for 14 years, there's a window area of 14 years. But 1980 is at the center of these, like seven years on one side and seven years on the other. And that's the only time 
when that latitude would generate the fine structure constant because of the drift of the of the African plate, you know, right. 2.15 centimeters a year. And um, but you can calculate that is what I did. I calculated it back to 1980 to see what the coordinates would have been then. And I found this golden cut latitude. And as I said, it generates the fine structure constant, the, the inverse number of fine structure constant to eight decimal places, but to the same um, the same determination that was made in 2018. It, and so anybody would, it's like, it's like the, um, whoever, in co whoever created the code saying all they had to do was look at that latitude and times it by 32 and divide by seven and they get the prime structure yeah. constant that would right. be determined in 2018 right. and published and then published in 2019. And the strange thing about this is, is I was working on the last chapter of the book, the first book, talking about this. But I didn't have the latest determination in 2018. It was only published in, on May the 26th, 2019. And it was when I looked on Wikipedia and found the latest determination, that I thought, well, crikey, that's that. <laughs> but what was generated by that latitude in, in 1980 has predicted what's just been determined. You know, the last two digits, which is 08. So I just, I almost fell off my chair. And I'm thinking, what if Carl Sagan knew this? You know, that, yeah, the, the fine structure constant is being given in a message from an advanced civilization, maybe, but it's doing so through ancient Giza, through a latitude that passed through Giza. A golden oh, yeah. cut latitude to which the, the pyramids were, were placed, how they were, where, how they were constructed. They were constructed this kind of fire template in Giza. What, what, then, what, what the skeptic would say is what they did with the physical constants, where you have all these physical constants, and you say, what's the chances of all these constants? And so then they came up with the multiple universe theory, and they said, well, there's uh, uh, 10 to the billionth, uh, 10 to the 1,000th galaxies, and this is the only one where that fine structure constant showed up. And it's that kind of nonsense. You met, you mess with the, uh, the, uh, the the mathematics, and I think, you know, uh, it, it's very impressive to you and I, but... Um, to, to these guys, they'll always have an explanation to walk the yeah, way out. But, but you know what, Grant, the answer, that, the answer yeah. to that is from a scientific perspective is if you, if you construct a model yeah. that incorporates the observations, right, then yeah. you put the model to a test by its predictions. Exactly. And that's what Gary is going to do. So it's not a plausibility analysis. You, can't, you don't do science by, by adjudicating models based on plausibility because what Gary's proposing is implausible. I, I get it. But that's yeah. not how you do science, okay? The way you do science is by procuring the evidence to either falsify the model or confirming it. Yeah, and right. what Gary and what Gary is doing with his, and you know, he hasn't gotten to that point, but his model, the whole thing, the whole Penniston code model makes a defined prediction. When you get to the end of this code interpretation, what Gary is predicting that we will be able to go to a specific place on the map in the, of the world and there will be something there. Okay, that's the prediction the model makes, and that will put the code interpretation to a real test. Can I just add something? The, one of the important things about this is that whoever devised the code knew when the land mass would move into, into that latitude. That, I mean, where it would line up, where the five ratio template of, the, of Giza yeah. and, and now the pyramids are aligned when it would actually line up when that 
golden cut latitude would line up with those numbers that produce mm -hmm. we didn't even have and we didn't even have to we didn't even have to <laughs> gary the 1984 ellipsoid wasn't even made in 1980 yet you that know you know why mark laner surveyed uh, the Giza plateau in 1984 is because that is they had just come out with the new reference ellipsoid right it's called the w i think it's called the wgs 1984 right and so there's no possible way that in 1980 any of this would have been available that's right yeah. despite what i believe the information is is there it's what comes out of the code it's there uh -huh. and anybody who would follow the steps i took to reach this these conclusions they would they would be able to find it themselves they'd be able to do it themselves Right. The thing is, I, if I ever found something, intuitively I might chance a, upon something and I will look into it. But if I find out it's wrong or it's been falsified, I won't use it. I'll just reject it. I, I'll only, I'll only um, produce those. And the reason why I haven't pre uh, presented all this information from the code for 11 years is because I want it to be factual, factual information, mathematical. You can't refute it. And it is mathematical. That's it. Unless you got the math wrong, then you know it's true, isn't it? But um, just before we skip along, in our last discussion, Gary, we did put some emphasis on um, these further decimal places, but I didn't push the envelope on where or how far in the future. And I know there is a year out there in your research is, was that part of book one or am, am I thinking of information that's been shared with me about book two, but. No, I, I think I know what you're talking about. You're talking mm -hmm. about the great pyramid where everyone says that the center of the great pyramid is at the latitude coordinates of the speed of light, the latitude number, uh, the latitude numbers are the speed of light, you know, two, nine, nine, seven, nine, two, four, five, eight. Yes. Um, is that what you're talking about? Yes. Because the latitude and... they're talking about is 29.9792458. And uh, that's what they believe. A lot of people believe that that's the center coordinates of the Great Pyramid. But Manu sent me information based on the Glen Dash data that, no, the Great Pyramid isn't at those coordinates. It's not, uh, it's not that number. It's close to it. It's close to, say, 29.9792. But you need the four five eight to make it the complete number. The mm. thing is, it, if the if the Giza plateau on the African plate is moving uh, north east direction, which is like fifty one point forty six degrees azimuth, and it's at two point fifteen centimeters a year, then it will re actually reach that latitude of the speed of light, the speed of light numbers. But that will be in the year two five six two. Two, five, six, two. And that's only 62 years after 2500 AD, which is the end of the timeline. It's only 62 years after that. And I'm thinking that the timeline at Giza is giving us like the age of Aquarius. That will be when the age of Aquarius will begin, 2500 AD. But this, the time when the Great Pyramid will meet those coordinates, speed of light coordinates, will be 25. Six two, and if it's the if it's the beginning of the age of Aquarius, then it means enlightenment, doesn't it? Light speed of light, enlightenment. It's all these and kind of connections. Do we think that's 
<laughs> point in the future where the code is coming back from? No, it's, it's got to be beyond Weinstein's that. time loop there's, question. <laughs> no, there's two dates. There's two dates. That are, it's not dates. No, it's one date and a number. And the two numbers in the message are 8100 and 666, the number of the beast. But I found that um, with the timeline, uh, if you, we were talking about this last night, weren't we, Manu? <clears throat> From the Sphinx, if you take the center of the Sphinx body and you take the latitude that's going through the center of the Sphinx body, that point there, and you measure from that point on the Sphinx to the center of G2, the second pyramid, the center of it, it's at its exact 666 meters. Okay. And if, and that line that goes to the G2 is passing through the timeline at the year 8100 AD in the future, 8100, because it's a two-way pendulum kind of clock. So you can go that way after 2500 AD, which is where it ends, you come back on yourself. And it's 8100 AD. So the line from the Sphinx to the G2, the second pyramid, the center of the G2, is 666 meters exactly, and it's passing through the timeline at 8100 AD. And those two numbers are in the message, in the binary code message, 8100 and 666. Wow. So it could be from 8100 in the future. And if so, and if there's some sort of cataclysm. <laughs> that did, you, uh, did, you, did you guys understand the procession line, where that is? The procession line is, is, the, is the Giza diagonal. You call it the procession right. line. I call it the Giza Diagonal, and it's yeah, also called the but, Pyramid. But, but I mean, I'm just asking if they, are, if, if they so, understood what you were talking about. Maybe the processional if I timeline. It in my Midwestern layman's You need term. graphics. Yeah. Yeah. I've provided graphics for all this so, so people yeah. can see it and, themselves. And we can drop them in or try to yeah. do a master slideshow or something. Okay. But, yeah. um, okay. So well, we Gary, have... Gary has basically quantified what uh, Bouval and Hancock published mm -hmm. in the 90s. They said the Giza Plateau is a procession clock, right? Yeah. You, you rewind, if you, if you match the uh, Sphinx with the constellation Leo on the spring equinox, that's when you have Septepi the first time, if you remember this, right? And what Gary, and, and Gary has published this years ago, right, Gary, with uh, Scott, Scott Crichton, and then he's elaborated on this, is basically now quantified this procession clock, and the quantification of it is needs a dial, and that dial is basically the diagonal that connects the corners of the mm -hmm. of the three pyramids through the sure. queen pyramid. So this is what he's talking about. And so that dial, where it is intersected by certain lines, is you can you can come up with a certain date, a certain year. Okay, and that's what he's talking about. So he's yeah, saying yeah. eighty one hundred is exactly where you intersect that line when you connect the Sphinx to the center of the second pyramid. Right, you got to go across from east to west, basically, and where you intersect that line—that is the equivalent of eighty-one hundred AD, right, Gary? Yeah, but that yeah. point on the timeline could be a recurring cataclysm date. Yeah. What I mean is, at that point in the cycle, there could be cataclysms <clears throat> at that point, or global catastrophes, or whatever. And the six-six-six is associated with the sun, mm -hmm. and then you get into this solar flare sort of theory that Robert Schock has put forward. Uh, and the 666 is kind of associated, it's a number of the sun, the, the solar 
power and everything. But but Gary, you have to you have to explain, right? So going one time across this whole line, sweeping across the line is half a procession cycle, right? Yeah. So in order to make a full twenty six thousand years, you go once from you know up where the Queen Pyramids of Khufu is, all the way down to the Queen Pyramid of Menkora. That's that's half of a procession cycle. So I'm just rounding it up to thirteen thousand years, right? And then yeah. you go back, and that's another thirteen thousand. That's twenty six. So this, I'm just trying to explain what Gary's talking about with the quantification. Yeah, to find these dates of, to find of these the timeline. Yeah, yeah. Time. So there's obviously a duplication, right? So going back and forth, you're going to cross the same position twice within one I, procession cycle. Can I add this as well? The Giza coordinates from the code are found in the code, which points to the Sphinx. If you take a 90 degree horizontal line, latitude line, from those Giza coordinates to the Giza diagonal timeline, it intersects the timeline at the year, what was it now, 520, 520 AD, which means it's 1980 years to 2580. And 1980 is the year when Jim Pennison received the code. But it doesn't just give you that. It gives you 360 um, yards. It's, it, that distance is 360 yards. And it's also 180 feet and 12,960 inches. So, it's, so that, that distance is actually half the distance between the Giza coordinates and the Sphinx to the Giza diagonal timeline, okay? And then when you add up 1,080 and 12,960, you get the number 14,040. And I realized that it was 14,040 days between when Jim Penniston wrote down the code until the book was finished, the first book was finished. <laughs> and not only that, the 360 uh, yards, the 360 yards in that distance, of course, the Rendlesham incident took place on the 360th day of the year. So I can see. I can time. see why. I can see why you're part of the Penison Code, Gary. I think. <laughs> right. I, I think you're it's the one who's going to program. You're no, going I, to one. Tell you, I have to say, it's the way I approach things. It's the way I approach data, and now, mm -hmm. and I mean, it's not the only code that I've been deciphering. I look at that Michael DeMayer illustration, you know, uh, emblem twenty-one, uh, where I found that what the He's got the Earth, he's got the proportional, he's got the combined proportions of the Earth and Moon, but then he's got this other circle in the middle. And it's actually the size of a Mercury in relation to the Earth and Moon. But no one knew that. <laughs> and it's the reason why I'm saying to you, and it's the reason why I added that graphic, is because it's, it's uh, another anomaly. You know, how did they know about the size of Mercury back then in 1600? Actually, the book was was uh, published in 1618, which is a fire year. It's a fire number, 1.618. It's, it's ah. 1,000 times. I <laughs> know, oh, I know, but this is, this is how it grabs me. I'm fine one thing and another thing, and I've got to document it all. Yeah. And so this is the reason why it's taken Are you going to put out Gary Osborne's big book of synchronicities? Like, no, I've got a... <laughs> I'm working on two books right now. I'm working on the second and third follow-up books to the first one. And of course, these two books have got everything in there about the code. It's what I wanted to publish first of all, but I needed, Jim said to me, look, I need a, I need a book that just tells the story of the incident and the aftermath. Could you do that? Yeah, I can do that. I did that. I researched it all. Four years it took me. And I thought, well, I'll put, 
he said at the last the last chapter, he said, can you make that a bridge into the next book about the code, findings in the code? So I said, yeah, I'll do that. And it's, it ended up like 30 pages, but it was a good bridge to the books that are yeah. coming, you know? And that's the, that's where I put the fine structure constant uh, finds in there. Um, but of course, I'll be following it up in these with these other two books and I'll I'll go over the fine structure constant thing again. And, uh, you know. Let me, let me ask a detail. question of Gary. Can I ask a question of Gary? Uh, in yeah. terms of, we, we were sort of joking about it, your role in this whole thing. I've written books on, you know, inspirational Einstein theory, relativity in a dream and Bohr's idea of the atom in a dream and stuff like that. Do you believe that you are being led that you're uh, like get, get into why, why you, what, what, what drags you into it? And, and yeah. how do you unravel this thing so quickly? I mean, it's almost like you're part of the mystery. Yeah. And uh, I'm not egotistical about it. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm on a level with everybody else. I don't put myself above people or anything about this experience I had in 93. Okay. With all humility, I had this experience which just changed my life. It was like a rebirth. And I realized it was just messing around with a hypnagogic state that got me into that state of where just all this information started coming to me. Now, I, I remember talking to Robert Beauval and he said there's these, um, you know, these people that are able to just think of like numbers that they can give you the the 360th number of pi yeah, yeah. you know you know savants and and he said uh, that's probably how the great pyramid was uh, was conceived by these geniuses um and i said well yeah but maybe and it's because somehow they're able to get into this hypnagogic state to some extent yeah. some degree they're able to yeah. get into this balanced state you know between waking and sleeping and I said to Robert, I said, you know what? I have these dreams and they're so explicit where I see numbers in like, it's like on a, on blue paper with gold numbers coming up. And I said, I see these numbers and I don't know what it means, but when I wake up, it's like, I have to write things down and uh, write things down. And I said, it's during the hypnagogic state. It's that point between waking and sleeping or when you're awake and asleep at the same time. It's this conducive to this, it's, it's a balance point. It's a, we're talking about balance again. So I think when people are able to get into that state, you know, to some degree or other, it depends on how um, intense they are in that state. They're able to gather information. And, and I think that, um, you know, the Oz factor is part of the UFO phenomenon, which yeah. Jenny Randalls came up with. She coined the phrase Oz factor. I think that's probably the hypnagogic state. It's a state that someone has yeah. to be in. Well, yeah. Go, go <clears> through the 1993 thing again. I mean, here's like uh, what... Um, uh, Manu was talking about where you can make predictions and I made, I made the prediction. I mean, cause that's, that's what I work on is these uh, download things and how I, it's almost like the idea of when you're talking, where are the words coming from? And people think there's neurons running around putting words in your head. I mean, that's not what's happening. It's almost like everybody's getting stuff out of the field. And so tell me about the 93 experience. Cause it, it does seem to indicate that you're yeah. part of this whole thing. And you know, you, you have this repeatedly through history of inventions coming and people being inspired, or you mentioned the the pie thing. That was Daniel Tammet. That was twenty two thousand five hundred and fourteen places where he had, and he said he sure, just sat there sure. and watched these numbers. Everything had a everything had a shape and a color, and he just rattled the numbers off, and he went for five hours and never got anything wrong. And that's the thing is that there's this yeah. field that you can pull stuff, and it appeared to me when you're talking 
you've got all this down is if you're pulling and then you confirm to me, yeah, you, this, this stuff was coming into your head. So uh, describe the 93 experience. How this thing sort of I'm sure that I'm, I'm sure that that experience I had prepared me for my work on the code. Yeah, because the information that was coming to me afterwards and, and the research I was doing into that experience and what it led me to, it was as if how I approached this information was exactly what was needed for me to be able to decipher the code. So I'm thinking that that experience I had in 93, which was on the 10th of November, I remember it just like it was yesterday. And the, and the, and the experience was I was in a dream and it was a hypnagogic type dream where I was sitting in front of a monitor. And this monitor was fritzing like the white kind of snow effect you get on the TV, which is between channels. So there's this between thing again, between opposites, between channels, and where all the uh, frequencies are all one, uh, you know. And I'm looking at this TV screen, this monitor, and I felt this rumbling in the, on the floor, from the floor, and it's going up my legs. And then I felt this energy coursing through my body it's a very empowering energy, you know, and that's what that energy is, Manu, when, when the ancient Egyptians talking about the ball, the power of the ball. Yeah? Of the, you mean ball? No, no, the ball, you know, the, the animal, the ball. When oh, I talked about ball. the power of the, power of the, ball. the energy, uh -huh. yes. it's empowering. Uh -huh. And they're talking about the Kundalini experience. They're talking about that vibration that goes up through the body. And this vibration that's going through the body, it's coarse at first. And it's like a rumbling. And, and also you... You hear this noise, which is like a vacuum cleaner. It's like, yeah. and the energy is going up and down your body slowly, first of all. And you feel like Superman because you feel like you can do anything because it's an empowering energy, you know? <laughs> and uh, of course, it's conducive to out of body experiences. But that's what you have. You have this energy going through your body, and then you feel like you go over a hill, stomach, go over a hill, or you're in an elevator that drops, and suddenly you're out of the body. Well, the first time this happened, I didn't have an out-of-body experience, but this energy was running up and down my body and it started gaining in frequency. And it was oscillating <clears throat> from, my, from my toes to my head. And then suddenly, bang, in my head. It was like bright white light, you know? And um, it, 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 it kind of lasted. I don't know how long it lasted, but it felt like eternity. You know, it's kind of a fraction of a second, but eternity at the same time. That's how you think of it. And then I started, after I came down from experience, it's like your mind, your normal consciousness. It's like, what was that? You know, what, was, what was that? I, I wish I could do that again. I've never had that experience since. I've never had that experience again since. And I wouldn't say I'm enlightened, but I would say that at that point I was enlightened. Because after I came down from the experience, I started having all this information come to me. It was just gathering in my mind and I was making insights and I was reading books hungry for all what I could read on all sorts of subjects. I came to the conclusions that the author was trying to come to before he even got to the end of the book. And it's like, I was making all these connections and I started writing things down and it was coming to me. And as I said to you, I was working at that time. I mean, this was 93. It was when I was working on a, a four megabyte RAM machine, you know, computer, a word process. And I was writing all this down. And I was, when I was at work, because I worked as a graphic artist and, on the artwork table, I'd have something come to me and I'd have to write it down, cut out the piece of card that I'd written it down and put it in my pocket, <laughs> write on cigarette boxes and, and all sorts of paper that I had hanging around, which I'd capture these insights. And then I'd get home and then I'd you know, process it all and I'd put it all on the computer, on the word processor. So I came up with something like that much of paper 
that I printed out of all this stuff. And anyway, um, that experience, I'm sure, was conducive to, I think it was in preparation for me working on the code. And, and I always I looked into the experience and I, and I realized that a lot of people since the 50s were having these awakening experiences like that in the West. Yeah. Of course, it was Kundalini, but I didn't know that's what it was at the time. Yeah. Um, I was ignorant to that. I mean, I'm a working class guy from Peckham in London. And I, <laughs> I mean, the environment I grew up in was a rough environment. It's not conducive to those sort of experiences, you know. Yeah. And uh, well, that's the way I see it. And uh, but I needed that environment to give me a, a down-to-earth kind of, uh, you know, perspective, I guess. So I, yeah. I didn't just go off with affairs. I was, I was getting my feet on the ground. Yeah, and uh, <clears throat> I looked into this experience, and a lot of people said that, you know, the, the enlightenment experience is like, it's like your mind reaches into the core center of an atom. And because that center of the atom is the same center in all atoms or each subatomic particles throughout the universe, you're in all of them at the same time. That, so, that, and I, that, that seems to fit the whole premise that this is all like pre-planned, that the Egyptians were helped, you were helped, uh, Jim was given stuff in from it. And it, it's like somebody's, somebody's up above putting these pieces of the puzzle together and we're like little yeah. people running around yeah. and, and, and working sounds on like it. A, we think it's all random and there's nothing random at all going on here. It's sounds like, like a simulation to me. Yeah, <laughs> somebody is somebody's intervening. I'm well into the simulation theory. I think that's probably ticks all the boxes, as far as I'm concerned. I I don't <laughs> like I don't like it, Gary. I I, I don't hate, either. I don't like the idea, but <laughs> if that's what it is, that's what it is. You know, but as I said, it ticks all the boxes, but I don't like it. No, it makes for an interesting no... story. I mean, when you take a look at mm. that stuff, when you it's like especially the idea of discovery. When you discover, and I've had the download experiences like you. When, when it, you suddenly realize something, you go, oh, my God. It's like, oh, and the lights are on, you know, and, it's like, yeah, and yeah. you know it's right. It's the difference between the smaller self thinks and the higher self knows. And when you pick something out of the higher self, you go, I know this is right. Don't tell me. And, and you know it has comes with this sense of certainty, which is the hardest thing for people to explain. That you just exactly. know. And when you, and when you yeah. try to communicate to other people, their eyes glaze over. And it's yeah. Like, oh, yeah. <laughs> So you're kind of, it's a curse in a way because you're, you're, all this information you've got and you can't really share it properly, you know? Yeah. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, I, I don't really want to go, I don't crave the limelight or anything. I'm not trying yeah. to, I'm no good at trying to um, promote myself anyway. You know, I just, there's a, a belief I've got that I don't really deserve it. But, but I, you know, I, I should add in, if, in <clears throat> science, this is, this is not the end of your journey. This is only the beginning. If you have, if you have an intuitive idea about how to explain certain things that you observe, you are, then the hard work begins because you have to, you have to prove your model. That means you have to falsify all the other models, right? And some, yeah. and the physicists are, there's a great example has to do with the holographic principle. Holographic principle was probably the least likely explanation for these things that you know Hawking's and uh, and Leonard Susskind and all these other people were seeing uh, around black holes, right? And but that ended up being the only model that ended up standing after they ruled everything else out, right? Mm. So somebody had a brilliant insight and said, well, maybe it's holographism, you know, multidimensional. There's one dimension less where the information is encoded, and that ended up being the right one. But you yeah. still had to prove it, right? Yeah. And yeah. so, so this is what scientists do. We we come up with models, and some of us are better at it than others. 
Uh, I'm certainly not that great at it. Um, you know, for me, it's all hard work and um, I'm not that great actually at coming up with out of the box models. But um, my, I see my position more in, you know, trying to have a discipline about testing the different models and, and falsifying the ones that are not correct so that we are, that we can actually prove what we think is right is actually right. Yeah. yeah. You know, I was going to, I was going to say that I've kind of isolated myself really over the last few years. It's because I wanted to concentrate on what the, the books and I thought to myself, once those books are out, then I'll talk about it all. I mean, I'm nearly at that point now, which is the reason why I'm, you know, I don't mind being interviewed on it. Uh, because I think some of this stuff needs to be known. Um, but, you know, I'm not really craving for the limelight or anything like that. You know, I don't really want attention. In fact, I shy away from it. But I thought, just concentrate on the work, on the books, make sure it's all, everything's perfect, and that leave that as a kind of legacy. You know? This yeah. is what my mission in life was supposed to be. That's how I see it. In, in terms of publicity, where is Jim these days? I mean, if you're with the books, is he going to come oh, he's out? Riding- He's riding the surf. <laughs> he's riding the surf at the moment because really the book has done him a hell of a lot of good, I think, because it's, it gave him more um, confidence in himself to be able to go out there and talk about it. Uh, so, yeah, I think it was good therapy for him to get all that out in this single book, in this single volume, everything he wanted to say. And even though he put down certain people that he was working with at the time, uh, but it, he said, you know, that's how I saw it at the time. And I'm being truthful. It's how I perceived things. So um, he wanted to get all that out because he, he was on the end of a lot of stick from people, you know, and yeah. even the other witnesses. So he wanted to give his record of what happened. Yeah. The, and, I think that yeah. I think the Peniston code, Gary, is what will vindicate him. Yeah. Uh, at the end of the day, because the Peniston code, you don't need Jim, you, you know, you don't need anybody uh to the code is the code right so and you are making a prediction with this code it's a testable prediction and i can't overemphasize this enough this is really the key of the whole story mm-hmm. is that you basically are telling at when you're done with interpreting this code and i don't want to take the wind out of your sails but i like it because of that because you are basically putting a shovel in people's hand and saying you go to that place yeah and i predict you will find something that yeah. has to do with this whole story. And I think that's the key at the end of the day. So all the skeptics, okay, <laughs> they can say whatever they want. Um, you have a testable prediction. Yeah. yeah, I think if they were to follow the steps I took to come to all this information, uh, they would they would make the same discoveries themselves. You know, it's easy. Yeah, well, I mean, it's other, easy to follow what I've done. And the other thing is the more it goes, if it was a sort of a sort of a, just a thing that he made up or, Whatever it would have fallen apart mm. long time ago, and that's the he thing that's, that's most significant to me is the deep. It's it's almost like the the Jimmy Blanchett stuff or your stuff or this mm. uh, this stuff. The more you look at it, the more complex it gets, and the more vindication you get that it's real. Yeah, and sure. whereas if it was a different, it would have fallen apart a long time ago, and and yeah, there's been no flaws in it yet. Yeah, I just want to say that the people who are still against Jim Penniston and still kind of they're calling him a liar, saying he made all the whole thing up. He wouldn't have had the patience to, to come up with all what I've found, to generate, yeah. to encapsulate in those seven columns all the information that I've found, you know? Yeah. So um, he wouldn't yeah, just... I wouldn't just worry about that because... Like, I wouldn't worry about that because that's basically ufology. It's like, 
we we declare something a hoax and then wait for the next thing and that's why we get burned by hoaxes so many times is everybody thinks the answer is going to be in the future and so when a new mm. video comes out everybody jumps on the video and they they put it out and then someone says it's a hoax and then we go on to the next one and we we just keep falling for the same thing and we've yeah. got all the information we already need it's just nobody wants to do any actual research they just want to look for the next big story in the next in entertainment stuff and there's only guys like you and Manu and people who are actually uh, doing hard work and and it may it's it's almost like the old idea of the the dual slit experiment where you know it took years and years and decades for that to be sort of verified that yeah. it may not in our lifetime but the, we we set the the we've done what we can and put the pieces in in that we can and the the result will be in the future but all you can do is what you can right now if you don't have the you know the, the material that's necessary uh, but I think you've done a fantastic job on this in, in terms you. of showing that this is a very complex thing and it does fit together when you actually do the work, which most people aren't going to do. So you can't worry about those people. Yeah, um, I mean, what I was going to say is, is that that's the reason why I haven't rushed this material out in any kind of small volumes or anything along the way. It's, and, and people say, oh, it's just in it for the money. You know, if I was in it for the money, I would have rushed the book out years ago. I would have rushed the book out probably in the first six months of, uh, of working on the code. You know, if I was money orientated or, yeah. or had a financial interest in it. But no, I, I've worked on this to make sure that the data is accurate and it cannot really be refuted. It's mathematical. And I've worked on this and covered all the bases as much as I can. And using the right, the correct and reliable maps of Giza, the ones that you go to, Glenn Dash survey and Mark Lenner as well, I've, I've quoted him and I go to the right, the correct sources, and I make sure that everything's perfect with this as much as I can, so that people enjoy it. They enjoy something that's more based more on fact than something that's just, you know, it could be nonsense. Yeah. So it's worth it when when I get these books out, they'll be worth the money. They'll be worth whatever. Yeah, and you know, you're and you're 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 playing. It's almost like the World Cup of soccer. You're in the game. You're you're playing the game, and whether you get. Uh, recognition for it or it takes you know decades after you die i mean you 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 got to play the big game you got to put and it makes you excited and it makes you feel like you're actually doing something and uh, a sense of achievement and you yes, do whatever it was you're supposed to do it, especially if reincarnation this kind of thing's a fact then you came here to do yeah. this is part of the thing and maybe you yeah. came from the future and you put the 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 uh the the the, the message back from the future and you're coming back and you're you're playing all the roles and you don't even realize it yourself. That's exactly right. I, I, I don't want any karmic deaths. That's, thing, that's a fascinating theory, Grant. And I just want to say, I, I don't, I, Gary, I think he might be right about that. <laughs> I do not want any karmic debt. I want everything to be clean and perfect and, you know, as much as I can get it. And yes. no, no, no false, no, no false information. Mm. And I want to say, Manu, that you've helped me a great deal as well you know when i said that i will quote the the sources the, mo the most reliable sources you've helped me a great deal with some of the the material i mean a lot of it actually over the last few years uh, i knew manu because he i think you got in touch with me didn't you because you read the appendix in robert boval's book uh, cosmic worm and um manu come to visit me and heather and we took him out for lunch uh, at a local diner yeah. And uh, that's when I told him about the code 
And, <laughs> and he was salivating over that because he thought, ah, oh, this looks really good. You know, it's a kind of new perspective on the, on the old geezer thing. Because he knew I'd been working on geezer and the Great Pyramid. And he knew that some of the things that I, I generated were worth kind of looking into. So I think he was bewildered that I was actually working on something that was kind of UFO related. But <laughs> I, was, I was bewildered, but, yes. <laughs> but add answers for, I may have answers for like new information about Giza. So we went from there, didn't we? And um, I, I, can, I can honestly tell you, Grant, from all, everything that I have heard, which is not a lot about UFOs, the Peniston Code is the most intriguing yeah. single thing that I have ever seen. To me, that's the most interesting one because it's a, if it's a, commun it's a communication. Yeah. And, and, and that was my thing is how we get dragged. That's why I asked Gary how you get dragged into it. Because when I saw Jim's, when I heard the story, everybody was about, you know, the, the seven locations or whatever. I went like, and I was talking to Jim and it was like, because I had the download. I had that experience. It's like when, yeah. you, when you get that. So I said, this is a download. This is for real. He's describing something that happens that most people don't really recognize is that you can get this stuff from the field, from dreams, from whatever. And so I was always interested in the story, not so much what it, what it actually said, but the fact that, that they had set this whole thing up and that Jim had been given this story. And I realized it was an important story from day one. Whatever that yeah. code yeah. was, he was being told something for a specific reason. Yeah, that's what I believe too. And knowing Jim, you know, He's bewildered by all, and he doesn't really read. He's not a, a, a great yeah. reader of things. I will tell him something, and it's like he'll grasp some of it, but it, a lot of it kind of, he hasn't lived and breathed this stuff. So you yeah. just know that he had nothing to do. He, did, he had no hand in, in, the, in the code, you know, in devising it or anything like that. It's just something that somehow he was able to write down these seven sets of coordinates, and those seven sets of coordinates encapsulate all this information and I don't know. And he's, he's bewildered by how he, how he was able to do that. Yeah. And even the thing where he, it's very constant, even the um, you see musicians get this all the time where uh, yeah. uh, Viva La Vida by uh, Chris Martin talked about that, where Jim talked about the same thing where he was not able to sleep. He was not able to do it until he wrote the code down. And yes. that's you'll hear musicians say mm -hmm. I, they wouldn't let me go to bed until I wrote it down. And exactly these, patter these patterns that happen. So when Jim was saying these things about that, I'm going, this makes sense. This guy's telling the truth because I had yeah. worked on, on this inspirational type stuff and I knew this is how it happens. Yeah, I discussed this with Jim. And the thing is, I'm a guitarist. I was in a band, yeah. in a rock band, uh, to, uh, doing gigs in around South London. And, but I'm a guitarist. So I know that when you play a solo, yeah, you, you just play it. You only have to play the first couple of notes or even the first note and your hand just goes it just plays the pattern <laughs> you don't think about it. if you force about it if you was actually thinking about what you was playing you'd mess it up yeah, yeah. it's like if you were to think about when you're walking down the stairs if you took to think about each step you took you'd probably fall down it's <laughs> a, an automatic kind of thing and it and i think that when he started when he wrote out the first couple of digits it all just flowed just like uh, like the solo yeah. pattern that you play with you know yeah. on an and instrument then, and then they left them alone it's like we talked earlier man <clears throat> was talking about the, the the hologram idea that came because i did i did the whole book called inspired at 12 13 nobel prizes and one was the hologram where he couldn't figure it out he couldn't figure it out he couldn't figure it out and he was either there was two of them there was the hologram and there was the laser and they were both sitting on park benches one was towns and one was this uh, gabor guy 
and they were sitting there. He was watching a tennis match, and he just relaxed his mind. He just sat there, and all of a sudden, boom! The idea came in his head, and he went running back to the lab and wrote it down. But he'd worked on it for years, and he couldn't figure it out. And is when he he zoned out, yeah. quieted the mind, relaxed, and to pick up the signal. Yeah. And boom, it came in his head. And it happened with the hologram. He won the Nobel Prize. And it happened with the lasers. Same thing. He was sitting outside a restaurant waiting for the restaurant to open. And suddenly this all this stuff came into his head. And and so when Jim talked about it, I said, this is how it works. Because I've had the experience myself. And you've had the experience. And so you pick up yeah. on this. That we are getting some help. And that may be what the pyramid was all about. That the Egyptians may have been stupid guys. But they had some help from somebody to put all these things in their proper perspective and directions and all this kind of stuff. That kind of wraps it up, what you just said. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I think, and it's like, we you know, when you, you have a word that just goes out of your mind, you know the word and you know the name and then you can't think of it. But when you relax later on and leave it for 10 minutes, it just comes to you, doesn't it? Yeah. Or so, even Deepak Chopra has the joke where he says, yeah. you know, the thing about who's your first uh, girlfriend and the name pops in your head and he says, where'd that name come from? And people have these ideas. Oh, somebody went up, uh, neurons went up and looked at a filing cabinet. It's like, no, it's not, it's, it's not what's going on. Uh, it's a little yeah, more you complex know, than that. You know, you, you, brought, you, you brought up the ancient Egyptians. So I'm, I'm right now studying the pyramid texts. And what we're finding, uh, me and my uh, two co-researchers, is that the, the sky, the pyramid texts are basically projecting, simulating the sky. Okay. And I think they, they were very intuitive about nat the natural world because they were not making this artificial separation between describing objectively nature and metaphorically doing so with myth, right? To them, it was the same. When they were describing nature, they were using metaphorical, colorful language. And we artificially have separated this, which is why we have to wait for these special moments when suddenly something comes to us right yeah, yeah. but i think the ancient egyptians much more were in tune with their environment and so i actually yeah. give them a lot of credit for these designs i think it is possible that they have some help and of course i think they did have some knowledge that they inherited but they also came up with quite a bit of it for example i think procession was not inherited they developed and robert Bouval wrote about this if you know uh, black genesis and Imhotep, uh, architect of the cosmos, where he talks about Napta Playa, the prehistoric civilization, you know, in the desert. And they basically were measuring the slow movement of the stars and they were aligning megalithic lines towards the stars. So I think they they were very much in tune with nature yeah. and they they brought holistic. some of that knowledge into the architecture of the building. They, they had a more holistic view of the world around. Yeah. Them. Yeah. And it's like what Colin Wilson, yeah. I, I met Colin Wilson. I went down to see him in his cottage. You know, Colin Wilson, the writer, the author. And um, yeah, and he was talking about the third force. And he said, that's what the ancients had some kind of that, that perspective, this third force perspective, which is balanced and it's kind of relaxing and, just yes. letting things flow to you. And it's like they had a more right. holistic view. You see, our, our information, our knowledge is kind of compartmentalized between A and Z, you mm -hmm. know? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And uh, you don't see the connections, the connective kind of principle right. between, and I don't see any connections between them. And it's like being in a circular room and you see all these doors leading off and you're in a circular room. And you, down those doors, if you open the door and you look down, they're all different belief systems and, uh, and fields of research and, subjects and that and if you walk down one of them you get lost yeah you have mm -hmm. to stay in the center this is what colin wilson said. you use that as an analogy you kind of you have to say stay centered you it's like you can look down each one of these but don't ever walk down them yeah. you're going to get lost 
you can know about it by staying centered. I had and the he said, same experience. neutral. I had the same experience when I was very young. I worked. I worked my whole life at the university, but I worked as a bartender at the faculty club lounge, and I was never intimidated by academics because I'd worked with them. I, I my whole career. I never. I was a professor, but I worked with them I, every day. And I was into the UFO thing back in this in the 1970s. And I remember they would come and argue with me. And there was three deans that would come, and the one was the plant science guy, and and he would come and argue with me. And I, at one point, I said. You're a plant scientist. You know, you know about roses. You know nothing about UFOs. And he said, "Yeah, you're right." And this is the idea that the more academic, the more detailed an academic gets, the less they know because they they get down one Entrenched. particular road and they have to keep up with that thing. But because a guy has a, a, a PhD in quantum physics, doesn't mean you're going to get him to fix your car. And I and I remember when I first got trained, the, the there was a guy at two PhD degrees that trained me. And he was going to go work for the U.S. Navy. And he said, just remember, don't get intimidated by these guys when they've had one too many beers. They're just like any other drunk on the street. And so I always knew that academics were just people who were that they would get a, a bachelor's degree and then they didn't want to go to get a job, then get a master's degree and, and figure we'll make more money. And then no one would hire them with a master's degree. And then they say, well, I got a Ph.D. degree so I can teach. And, and they would they would be very, very specialized. But outside their field, they knew nothing. And that you're so you're right. Exactly. You got to keep it perspective that you know with everything going at the same time rather if you get down one perspective road you get these these ideas that are in that domain and it's like religious beliefs that you can't get out of it that's why the ancients why i say the ancients had this holistic view and it's yeah. like um they, they had magical correspondences didn't they between things and those were the connections they had between things that's how their knowledge was a kind of system of knowledge uh, we haven't got a system of knowledge as i said ours is compartmentalized between a and z and there's no system to it yeah, where yeah. you see all the connects, all the connections exactly. and the correlations, and that that may be what the what the code is doing is it's that's what the enlightenment experience is. That's mm -hmm. what the enlightenment experience is. It's like you're at the hub of the wheel. Yeah, all, yeah. all those, it's all at once. Yeah. And and that's one of the key messages is everything is one. Everything's connected. And, you yeah. know, the, the main message, 54% of all experiencers say they were talked about oneness, this concept that it's all one thing. You got to quit parsing it. You got to quit separating it. It's all one thing. It's all connected. And that's what this code, I think, is showing is that there's this connection and it's connected to this and it's connected to this. Exactly. And, and it's basically yeah. it was set up to show you this 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 unifying concept that everything in the universe is, you know, balanced. You got it. And, and connected. You got it. That's how I see it now. It's more realistic kind yeah. of concept that it's showing you that everything is connected and, and there's everything kind of put, uh, it, it will confirm it will confirm something and that's something will confirm it in return in yeah. turn and it's like it's all kind of i don't know it's uh and that, that's it's even organic. like even it's organic they even talk if you hear the high level guys and the, the government people who have come out they'll always talk about the fact that's why they never got anywhere with the ufo thing because it was always it was always stovepiped so if you're in classified world, then if you get, if you work for a metal thing, we bring you a piece of the craft and we take the electronic stuff to this guy and nobody's talking to anybody and it's all compartmentalized and there's no crossover and they never figured anything out. They've had the craft, they've had a craft since 1947, they can't figure it out because they're, no, nobody is an expert at, at all of it. They all know their little aspect of it and it's all, it's all divided up where there's nobody talking to each other. Oh, you know yeah, what? This 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 reminds me of something, Grant. I I heard uh, I heard what's his name, Bob Lazar, on yeah. Joe Rogan, say that he overheard a conversation that one of the crafts at that area where he was working 
was discovered from an ancient site. Have you heard about this? Is there anything else that you know about this? Um, no, I, I've heard sort of the rumor. I wouldn't know any more than just the rumor that you've heard. Yeah, and and um, so he actually, they, they, he actually, I, I, I mean, this is actually on YouTube. He said it. He said it to Joe Rogan yeah. that he overheard this conversation. Yeah. So, so I that part, that part isn't a rumor. So he actually said it. I know he said yeah. it, but I, um, but I, I think some of I, the newest speculation has to do with some of the wording that's been in, um, like the the latest UAPTF reports where they were talking about crashed and found materials. And so people are focusing on the found part and saying that, you know, it's not out of the question that we have archaeologically found technology oh. as well. So was, yeah. nothing no, I, confirmed, I was... though, any more than Lazar's story saying it, you know. <clears throat> and if you, if you take a look at yeah. the two, two people, like one is... Um, Tyler D, if you know who this guy is, he's this famous guy from, from NASA who um, does inventions, had beings in his room and stuff like that. Or Gary Nolan, uh, they, they, were they took uh, some professors out to this thing they called the gifting field. And, mm -hmm. and Bigelow used it. Um, a lot of these people have used this term, the gifting field, which is the idea that this material, like I, I always said, I even asked Jacques Vallée, I said, Jacques, doesn't make any sense. The thing flies across the galaxy and it go, it avoids the black holes and, and, and stars and comes flying here and then it crashes or pieces start falling off the craft. Come on, this doesn't make any sense at all. And I said, it looks more like they're dropping this thing the same as the code. They're dropping it as a gift. Yeah. And, and there's yeah. actually high level government officials who use that word. They call it the gifting field that we're being gifted. And that, when I asked Jacques Vallée about that, he said, well, I think I kind of came up with that idea, the gifting, that they're actually <laughs> dropping this stuff I loved that to, to move us along. Can I just say this, okay? The way I see the, the UFO phenomenon, the whole phenomenon, it's, it's as if it's, it's working its way into our reality through a blind spot. We're, we're kind of myopic to it. Yeah. And when I was talking about this in-between point, between opposites, it's kind of what Jung called the imaginal realm. No, no, he didn't call it that. It was someone else. I'm trying to think of the name of the author now. But it was what um, Jung actually called the third reality or the tertium quid. It's something that's between, it's a third force, it's a third thing between the two opposites, positive and negative. And this thing is neutral. This space is neutral. And as if they steal into our, and out of our reality through this midpoint in our consciousness, which we're myopic to because we've got our, we have our um, per perception on the dualities of everything, you know, the duality. Um, that's our dual perception. And it kind of, so it's using this point in our consciousness, which is what I say is the hypnagogic state as well, which is why when people have these experiences, they say that the phenomenon is both real and unreal at the same time. It's a fusion of two opposites. And I think that's where they're entering into our reality and exiting again. They can appear as something solid because it can be physical as well. It can be perceived as something physical because if this is a, if our reality is a simulation, then things that we touch and everything is all is all data, it's all yeah. it's all information. Yeah. <clears throat> so I'm saying that I think this intelligence is actually stealing in in and out of our reality through that myopic blind spot in our consciousness, which we're not usually in. We have to be kind of half, we have to be asleep, awake and asleep at the same time, hypnagogic. Yeah. 
And and the and other I, thing is <laughs> that they they may have done this on a thousand different planets before. Is the way we do it is we say we're we we invade a country and we say we're here to bring in freedom, democracy, Jesus, and McDonald's. And and next thing they're pointing a gun and telling you to get the hell out and leave us alone. And what they're doing is they're doing the breadcrumb thing where they drop the 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 the, the mystery and you figure it out for yourself. They're not enforcing anything. It's this gradual drip 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 thing where they're, they're yeah. putting these pieces together and we're sort of figuring this thing out and we're all excited and we're and that's how it evolves so that we come up with the idea rather than someone coming in and telling us what to do, which which they don't <laughs> want to interfere with our free will. They want us to figure it out, and so they're just dropping these these breadcrumbs that that are leading yeah. us to, to the the thing. And you're part of the game, and you may even be like working with them in some other reality. To uh, you, you go in there, and uh, uh, Gary, and you're gonna unravel this thing, and 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 it's like a game. It's like a like a simulated thing control. where it's all there's no time control and space. System. But you know, Gary, you know uh, Gary, what would interest? It would be interesting to see if somebody that doesn't know you and doesn't know your analysis of the code, how they would interpret it. I thought about that. I was yeah. I actually give it to a few people to look at and yeah. say, and I said to them, <clears throat> if you do this and do that, you'll come to something. And and actually they they don't, it's kind of weird. They kind of come up with some other kind of interpretation of it. So I might, well, yeah, no, no, but, then I start thinking to myself, I've got the right interpretation. I must have because, you know, the math is telling me that, you know? Yeah, but that's, but see, this is what Grant, I, if I understood him correctly, <laughs> this is what he's saying, right? So the way that these breadcrumbs work is that it doesn't just tell you something. It, <laughs> it makes you realize it, right? It kind of induces knowledge uh, in yeah. you, right? And then, but there could be other people that have different inductions, right? It just depends. And then one of one of all these people is going to have it right. Um, yeah, I know and, that if anybody followed what I did step by step, they would come to the same in conclusions and interpretation. Is that is that what you think? But I think if they look at it coldly and they go in coldly like I did, then they'll probably yeah. come to something else. Like Scott Crichton, I mean he. He, when I first told him, no, oh, Jim Pennison got in touch with me and wants me to look at his code, uh, these coordinates. He said, I wouldn't touch it. I yeah. wouldn't touch it. He said, no, I said, I'll, I'm intrigued because I have looked at it and I've found 23.5 degree angles. Of that. He said, yeah, someone's yanking your chain. And I actually thought, I thought, oh, Jim, Jim is probably having me on or something or he's created it all himself. But then I started going further into it and I was finding things that Jim just couldn't have made up. And, it, and Scott started looking at himself and he came up with a totally different interpretation of it. He said it had to do with the stars, you know, and I thought, no, and it was just, it didn't look right. It just didn't gel with me, you know? Yeah. So yeah, someone can actually take it and then give another interpretation of it, or they might interpret it the way they, it's really due to their, their belief system. Yeah, yeah. And you've that, got to that, be careful with it because if they're sort of cult-minded and they see things like, um, I don't know, they could turn it into a cult. They could turn everything. I mean, the six, six, six number being in there. Yeah. You know, it's like, oh, crikey, what does that mean? You know? Yeah. 
That, that's the problem yeah. is people have the belief systems that you, you if you show it to somebody, <laughs> it's like you, UFOs. They don't care because they're not interested. They, have, they couldn't care less. And what, what did Max Planck say? New ideas do not advance by convincing your, your, your opponent or whatever that you're right. It advances by people dying and new generation is not offended with the idea. Yeah, that's, that's true. And so you put the idea out and it just gradually somebody picks up on it and it, it moves along that way where um, I, I don't think somebody who's, um, and people will have their belief system. So if you show it to a psychology, it's kind of a psychology view to it. And he's not going to do the work. He's not going to do the decades of work that you did because he doesn't have the interest. He wasn't inspired the way you were inspired. It was sort of like, it's like, a, I, you know, it's too much math. I don't want to we'll look at it or whatever. And just go to his belief system. And that's the problem that we have is everybody has their belief system. That's what I found with academics is they will argue from their position of what their specialty is. And it's almost like saying that we're going to we're going to use whether it's the code or whether it's UFOs, we're going to use a cardinal from the Roman Catholic Church who's been there for 43 years. And you go, I'm not using a cardinal cardinal and 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 we said that you know the guy's biased he's a cardinal for 43 years well if a phd physicist has been a physicist for 43 years he's just like a cardinal he's got very distinct beliefs and he's not about to like this clip that um that that uh nicole showed uh with um uh eric uh yeah. weinstein if you looked at the actual interview he's doing with hell put off he was he said this was bullshit he was mad he was furious that that you know you what are you telling me there's new physics and he was just like furious <laughs> Yeah, uh, that's the thing. Bad, and then he got scared. Yeah, that's the thing, sir. It's what I was talking to Manu about. I said that you see, if you become so emotionally attached to your work, then you're you're gone. You're gone. You, you'll have everyone attacking you. You'll just lose. You just go right under. Mm -hmm. If you stay objectively emotionally detached from your work, then it's just it's just better all around. It's just a better way. Of approaching but, I, but, but I think, Gary, I think uh, the whole idea of the code is to not just give one message. I think this is a bottle that have, has multiple pieces of paper inside. Each paper mm. has a different message because mm. it's, remember, there's a causality problem, right? You can't yeah. send a message back in time and expect that uh, you will have the same future. That's it's not possible. Yeah. So, yeah, so, so, so it is actually built into the code to be multi-interpretational. That that yeah. is part of the design, and and the the way that I'm con conceptualizing this is that it's the probability of the different pieces of paper in the bottle that determines when the future comes, which ones of these pieces of paper is going to have the right message. Okay. That's yeah. how you do this, right? So that's how that's how I think you can overcome the causality paradox. Okay, so there's Gary, and then there's like you talked about, you mentioned Scott. There's all these people that look at this Peniston code, and they all have like they have different takes, right? And that mm -hmm. is by design, I actually think. If it was a quantum computer that sent us back in, into the past, that's what the quantum computer would do. It would create a wave function that has different outcomes, all built into this big bottle. Okay. And then each one receives this bottle, takes a different piece of paper, has a different way to interpret this, this, this message, right? And then when the future, when whatever the code is supposed to tell us, like let's say it's a catastrophe and the code is supposed to help us avert the catastrophe, right? But there could be multiple catastrophes, right? You can have a comet hit, you can have a, vol a super volcano breakout, you can have solar strike, you know, all these catastrophes that can hit. And depending on whatever hap comes our way, we may need a different 
set of uh, escape patches. Okay. Yeah. And so, so what you're finding might be the solution for one type of future, but what somebody else may find is the solution for another type of future. And I think that is how you overcome the paradox of changing right. the past. Yeah. And you know what, with this code, I have tried to prove myself wrong on, on several, well, on, on numerous accounts, you know, trying to prove myself wrong with certain things. And, I, and that's how I approach it. And I try to not get into the old kind of, you know, it's what I've, it's what I predict, you know, that the information is just, it's just kind of fit in that way because that's what I believe. I'm, I'm trying to, I'm trying to approach it in a way where that, doesn't enter into it you know what I'm saying? yeah i mean but that's so, what but that's what drives you gary this is a good thing that's not a bad thing you know you mentioned i, I agree with you no, that you, right. you shouldn't be you shouldn't marry your theories i completely agree with you yeah but at the end of the day you still have your convictions and look that conviction kept your kept you going for 11 years you didn't give up because you really think you're onto something and yeah. there's going to be other people that are going to have exactly the same passion about the code, which I hope will happen. You know, this is what I'm, I don't understand why there's not more people working on this, but I hope after this people will, and they will have the same passion and they will come out with a different explanation. And that's a good thing. That's not yeah, a bad it, thing. We need multiplicity is not a bad thing. It's a, it's a good thing. It's a and, funny thing because, because when, sorry, Manu, I interrupted yeah, it's okay. um, I kind of, I was kind of embarrassed about the code because you know, it's been 11 years and, and I haven't really produced anything. I haven't produced the findings yet. I mean, it's all there and I've written everything down and documented everything. But I thought people are going off this. They don't, you know, they're just saying, oh, we knew there was nothing to it. It's, you know, it's over. Well, it's and good because, enough. Gary, it was good enough for me to buy a ticket to go to Africa to check, <laughs> to, check to get a shovel. <laughs> to check up on what you're predicting yeah it's, that's it's, another story it's good that's enough a, it's good enough for that <laughs> but you know i was kind of embarrassed that people think you know this is all over you know they didn't find anything that's it because i haven't really produced anything you know uh, substantial apart no, from you have book. you have you have produced a lot actually. yeah but, and i've only kind of posted things on facebook and you gotta admit facebook isn't the sort of it's not the medium to do it and that mm -hmm. and um yeah, so I'm kind of, I was kind of embarrassed by the whole thing that it's taken all this time, you know, and people kind of lost faith in it or, or lost that, belief in it. And, I, don't, I don't think so. I, I'm not I interested in it anymore, you know? I think there's plenty of people out there in, the, in our community that are like me that have been following Rendlesham, you know, yeah. 40 years now. Like, it's, it's my Roswell. I know they call it the UK's Roswell, but... I mean, it's it's the case I thought of my whole life before Roswell. And yeah, I, I think in lieu of the first book coming out, I think everybody's kind of settled into it. You know, all the back and forth, we, the, the name we can't name involved in it. <laughs> you know, I think that part of it's finally put to bed. And now that we have the truth and a sequence of events here, I think there's people I, I know I say it probably at least once a month in different social settings to where this is a living, breathing case for us. Yes, it is. This That's isn't one that just, you know, yeah. it's an event. It happened. It's documented. Yeah. It's well-documented done. Like this is so unfolding that we should all be following this probably it's for the rest of our lives, but 
Okay. It's time sensitive. Yeah, it's time sensitive. You guys and, and were bringing up uh, Jim and wondering what he was up to. I actually checked in with him about a month ago, and he is doing podcasts. And he told me that he's uh, working with a team of European scientists, which are sponsored by a major university, and they're going to start going to all these site locations and documenting them. And he'll go to a few, but probably won't make it to all of them. So that's kind of exciting there. Like as this comes out, it's like the seeds of information that we were talking about coming backwards in time. We're planting these seeds in the future too. Like, you know, when we post these chats and interviews, they'll, they'll get a little bit of feedback on my channel, but when Grant posts them, (laughs) you know, (laughs) It's like, yeah, sure. It's like yeah, a commercial no. in the Super yeah. Bowl. <laughs> and, and yeah, no, and yet, no doubt people would be interested after they see this. Yeah. And, and, and one, one thing I'd like to make a point of is, is because we live in Western society, we want everything yesterday. And you got to remember that the pyramids were built whenever thousands and thousands of years ago. And they set all these, these, these things in the, 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 all the mathematics and all this sort of stuff. And we're only discovering it now. 4,000, 5,000, 6,000 years later. And you've been working on this for 42 years since they put the Peniston code in. And so it it appears who's ever behind this isn't interested in us figuring it out. It's working on figuring it out that we just, it's a gradual knowledge that builds and builds and builds. And it was set up thousands of years ago and, and nobody even looked at it until 1980 when you started looking at it. You know what? One of the questions that keeps coming up every time is why did Jim Pennison sit on it for 30 years, you know, this code? Yeah. Well, now we know why. Because we would need certain um, programs, certain online uh, mapping systems and, or mapping programs to be able to decipher the code. Mm-hmm. It would have to be 30 years later because really that's when I first started looking at it, I had a window area with uh, Google Maps because they changed it after three, four years. And I couldn't use it the same way I, would, I had done in finding the initial information. So I had a window of four, four years to do that. And uh, that was when I first started on it. And that was, yeah, virtually 30 years after Jim had first written down the binary code. And so people say, why did he sit on it for 30 years? Well, because, it, because we needed all this first to be able to decipher it. We needed 30 years. And I think the reason why it came out in 1980 was because of the, the fine structure constant latitude that's <laughs> passing through Giza at that time. I think that's probably why it was given to him. And, all, and the numbers, and the 1980 numbers that are in there, it all kind of hinges on, it's all pivotal on that year, you know. So uh, taking 30 years, it needed to be, be so we had all the programs at our disposal to be able to decipher it. And uh, the I'll, tools. I'll yeah. point out maybe this, this thing that keeps sticking in my mind when we were talking about procession and the sphinx if i'm remembering all of my robert books correctly or maybe some documentaries (laughs) and aren't are are we supposing that the sphinx was built in uh matriarchal times like the last age of women and here we are in the 2000s, and it's, you know, the dawn of Manu, Manu millennium can, of women. Manu can go into all that. Yeah, Manu goes into all that in the book. I mean, 
Well, I have some. I have good news, Nicole, yeah. because we think the the Sphinx was a lioness. Aha! Well, even more sense. Just makes more sense to me. Yeah, yeah. and we have a name. Uh, it, it, the re- in the records, she is called. She is called Mehit. Ah, I've come across that name before. And she yes. was the guardian of the archives, wasn't she? She, she? she was a guardian of the right of the early dynastic. Uh, shrine that or the the tent where the archivists the writers were the royal bureaucrats basically so they, she was guarding uh, the early archive yes the archives of the king that's uh it's a good connection mm-hmm. so it wasn't a lion it wasn't a male you, you know why march as well being yeah. let's celebrate women in march well, that's, that's right what, that's right. the other thing that comes to mind is her name also means the flood as well doesn't it the, the deluge means, of the flood. It, it means the great flood. Yeah, Mehit Waret means great flood. The the thing is, in if you remember, the constellation Leo has sort of a main like head portion, and so in in the nineties when uh, John Anthony Weston, Robert Schock, uh, and Boris Said, and you know with Charlton Heston, and uh, they produced this film, uh, they proposed that the original statue may have been a lion, a male lion. And this is because of the shape of the constellation Leo. So at that time, of course, we didn't have, we hadn't looked um, or had, I, I wasn't involved at that time, of course, you know, I got involved only a couple of years ago. But so in the meantime, so we published this paper in 2017. It's, it's free access, Nicole, you can check it out. Uh, this is Uval Shock and I, we wrote this paper and were we for the first time show written evidence that uh, the statue that was at Giza was actually originally a lioness. Uh, And now in the meantime, one of my colleagues called Robert Nayland has, he's a sculptor. He's actually a world champion in snow sculpting and lives in Colorado. It's an incredible story. Um, He was on the news because of it. Yeah, So what he has shown is that you could have fit the whole head of the Sphinx, the beard, the lapels, the, the nemesis, the whole thing, would fit into a lioness head. Mm. Not only that, he has also found the remnant of the original neck of the lioness on the back of the Sphinx. And you can see this from photography from above. You can see a little ridge. It's a triangular ridge on the top of the Sphinx. And that's where Robert thinks, Robert Nayland, thinks the original neck of the lioness statue was coming out from. And of course, it was most likely a lunar cult at the time. Wasn't it, mm-hmm. Manu? Yeah, which, Luna, became right. a, which became a male-dominated solar cult. solar cult, yeah. right? So we are resurrecting the feminine, the feminine power in in early dynastic, which is going on at every level now, isn't it? <laughs> yes, that's right. I mean, yes. Heather, Heather is a great. Yes, the Sphinx, the Sphinx has me too written all over it. <laughs> I mean, Heather, all over her. About. This makes me even think of um, other cultural interpretations that we call. Sphinxes, and I mean, some are even winged, but uh, mm-hmm. most of the ones I've seen have breasts. So, good point. Yeah, you, you're absolutely I correct mean, about why that. Why would this one be different? Absolutely, yeah. very good point. Yes, I completely agree with you. It's a, it's yeah. the hidden feminine. That's the truth mm-hmm. about every the time, statue. Yes, every time ever is in a situation where she thinks yes. she prays to the goddess. She goes, "Thank the goddess for that. Thank the goddess." Yes. That's yeah. right. <laughs> And she's very much into, yeah, yes. she's very much into the feminine kind of way yes. of thing. Yeah. You should, wow. you should interview her as well at some point. We will. We will. Um, yeah. Wow. How long have we been on? How long have we been on? 
Almost three hours. Almost three hours. Is that normal? Is that a normal time? It's not unusual. Okay. You might have to section this into two or three parts. Yeah. <laughs> Who knows? That'd be good. That'll be good. It could be a lot of 20 minute little segments too. But. <laughs> That's great. You know, when I was talking earlier and it just fouled and it's because of the earphone I had, you know, I think I just went. Did you hear everything I said uh, up until when you were saying, I think you're, you know, you're not coming through. Did you hear everything I said? I think so. I didn't miss anything. When I was talking I was... about balance. When I was talking oh, you about did, balance. You did, you dropped out. You did drop out for a minute, Gary. You, your, the video went out. Oh. Yeah. yeah. But did yeah. you hear me talk about Paula Harris when I was talking to her about yes. this? Did I mention it? Yeah, oh, that's all right. It's good. Yeah, yeah. We, I think we talked about that a little bit in the last discussion, too. Yeah, we did. That's right. But, you know, I thought if you've lost that, I couldn't go through all that again. <laughs> like, you know, I thought I had it right this time in the way I kind of, you know, emphasize certain things. I think I had it right. Um, yeah. Any okay. deadline for the book, Gary? Any uh, timeline? I'm, I'm hoping this year, you know, I'm hoping this year. And okay. it's what I said to Jim. I said, I want to get this out this year if I can. I'm working on it. I'm, I, but you see, every every time I'm working on it, I'm finding new things. It's like I've got to document it. I've got to, no it, it, it's something that might substantiate something else I've already written, and I'll have to I'll have to add it. You know. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, are you, you um, self-publishing or are you going through a publisher? Um, we're going to self-publish again because that was quite it was quite good um, because, through Amazon. Yeah. Because through Amazon. through self-publishing, you can just go back and make I update books all the time. When you find something new, right? You just go yeah. back and update the book as long as you know you got putting it up and you can that's a good thing about self-publishing you can you can change it as you as you go along and it better it's better isn't it yeah, yeah um i yeah i think that's what i'm gonna do and uh i was gonna say uh yeah i'm finding things all the time as i said even what manu's come up with recently and what he told me last night there's something else there and it's like god i'm gonna have to add that in at some point you know what manu was coming up with last night i was talking, I'm on, the, on the phone to, with manu to about three and a half hours weren't we and and um, we gotta stop doing this, Gary. These <laughs> three-hour sessions. <laughs> yeah, but you see, you I have I have I have three on. papers to write. Okay. <laughs> yeah, that, uh, that's uh, the problem. Is when you get into uh, new material and analyzing stuff, that's the left brain. The left brain says, "Let's get the details, and then let's get the details yeah. of the details," and nothing yeah. ever gets done. It just keeps. Especially, that's right. Especially talking to Gary because you just can't hang up on him. It's too fun to talk to him about these things. <laughs> Right. Yeah. One thing leads to another, doesn't it? That's and right. Another, and another. Yeah. You know, just when you think you're getting to the top, there is another hill. You know. Yeah. Well, yeah. I so, can be the one that ends all the fun, and I can say, <laughs> you can just push me. the button. Yeah, you, you got a son. Yes. You got to put to bed. I mm. do. Yeah. Well, I think now. we covered a lot, didn't we? We covered a lot, and I'm, I'm thinking did. to myself, is there anything I missed? Actually, no. It's well, quite we good. What? <laughs> You'll think of it. 10 minutes after we say goodbye and then I'll go, well, that's going to be part three, <coughs> part four. So <laughs> yeah, but I'm talking about the things that I kind of think I could talk about without you getting kind of bogged down with all the minutiae, yeah. you know, and the kind of nuances of the thing. So well, uh, yeah. as with the code ever <clears throat> unfolding, so will these conversations and discussions. Yeah, sure. We can, it's been good. You guys are more than welcome. I'll make a Zoom link for you anytime. <laughs> I love it. I, yes. And it was great talking with Manu. It was great being in the right. Manu, it's yeah. so yeah. nice, nice to meet to you, Manu. Meet you. Yeah, yeah, thanks for the invitation. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
Thanks. Let's do it again soon. And I, okay. I, I, yes. was, I was very educated by this. Thank you. Thank you. So All was right. I. So Thank was I. Thank you so much. We'll talk soon. Okay. Okay. Have, Have a good, good night. night. You good too. Night. Thank you. Bye-bye. Mm -hmm. Good night. Bye.